Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. From Sundance TV and Sundance Now, this is The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox. Join me as I explore the dark corners, dig into the unresolved questions, and get personal with the humans at the heart of Sundance true crime documentaries. Tony and Susie were our gods. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Amen, Christians. It was supposed to be the Cadillac ministry. We're going to all work hard together, and all of us are going to have mansions and Cadillacs. He was business. She was gospel. We started working, and all the paychecks went to Tony and Sue. This season, I'm going behind the scenes of the four-part docuseries Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo. Last time, we talked with former cult member Carrie Miller, about how he got drawn into the fire and brimstone evangelism of Tony and Susan Alamo, and how they manipulated and exploited their members. But no one joins a cult thinking it's a cult. At the beginning, Tony and Susan Alamo were just street corner hucksters, handing out apocalyptic leaflets to hippies in Hollywood, preying on the resurgence of a kind of pop faith, a hip but conservative reaction to the horrors of war and civil unrest in the 70s. Nothing about them screamed cult, though an element of con artist was always present. They both lied about their successes in Hollywood, Tony as a promoter and Susan as an actress. They made money by parading their street corner converts in front of established churches, while Susan gave inspired guest sermons, walking away with the offering money. Eventually, the Tony and Susan Alamo Foundation went national with a televangelism program. And from there, the businesses multiplied. They repackaged and sold expired food and made designer jean jackets by conscripting their underage members into sweatshop labor. As the organization grew, the atmosphere soured. Tony became more abusive. And fear, manipulation, isolation, and physical abuse kept the converts trapped. But a cult, a successful cult, isn't just the methods of coercion, the atmosphere, the abuse. It's an enterprise. And the Tony and Susan Alamo Foundation, under the guise and protection of a religious organization, was a vast enterprise that raked in millions. And as we'll find out, the first crack in the armor came through charges of tax fraud. This side of the story fascinates me for a number of reasons. The fact that the members were exploited for their labor and resources while Tony was driving a Cadillac. 
that the church, in a deliberate and organized fashion, harnessed those resources to return a profit, not to better the world or even the lives of those people in the church. It makes me wonder, are the major religions and multinational corporations all that different? To go even deeper, don't miss Ministry of Evil, the twisted cult of Tony Alamo, now available on Sundance Now. Download the app or go to SundanceNow.com to start watching. To take us into the world of this criminal enterprise, we've reunited Carrie, who you met last time, with another former cult member, Jessica Cooper. Um, hey, Carrie. Hi, Jess. How you doing, doll? Good. How are you? Life is moving on. Life is enjoyable. And I'm very happy to see you on here just because it's so great to try and get this word out for so many reasons. Why don't you go? And then I'll tag you because you were there when it first started so you know how it was set up i was just a kid <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> and i remember you running around the lake and chasing geese yeah. <laughs> the other way around the geese were chasing me but yeah the ministry actually started in 1969 tony susan christian foundation that was when sunset boulevard hollywood boulevard hate ashbury was just full of young people hippies peace and love movement and susan told tony that's the harvest field out there and they went out and started recruiting. They lived off donations, lived in houses with everybody sleeping on the floor, you know, 100 people in a room, you know, just you were lucky if you had a sleeping bag or a blanket. But they ended up collecting enough money because people came in that might have had money or they might have had relatives that died, went to the funerals and got the donations and got enough money together, started buying property up in Saugus, California, because Susan wanted to get out of Hollywood because she hated the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department. There was an Easter in 1972, right after I joined. And Susan Lamo made the suggestion, let's all dress up for Easter. Let's all have nice clothes to wear for Easter. And let's all go out and get jobs. And everybody did that. Carpenters, everybody, painters, you know, people went to Bakersfield and chopped cotton. But we weren't allowed to take our money and go buy stuff. We had to turn it in, you know, to God and turn over all our paychecks and all our money and everything. We didn't have two nickels of our own to rub together. And everybody just worked. And then the persecution in California got so bad because a lot of parents were coming against the cult to get their kids out. And Susan decided to move the cult to Arkansas, where she grew up, where things were a little bit more lax. Like Jim Jones, Tony and Susan Alamo relocated their congregation several times, each time to avoid authorities, seek new opportunities, and deepen the already tight hold on their members. When the Alamo Foundation relocated to Arkansas, they still kept a presence in California. Arkansas shielded them from scrutiny, but California had celebrity and glamour, which meant money. After 10 years, Tony Alamo found out I had some college education. I had, you know, I took an accounting class and he hired some CPAs and he told me to work with them and set up some books. And we did a double entry accounting system and set the thing up to where we could actually use P&Ls and go get loans. He wouldn't go on computers. This was like in 1982, 83. He looked at me and he said, don't ever use computers for this stuff because the government will come in and take the spools and try to prosecute you. I'm like, what the hell is a spool? Well, okay. But, um, you know, I spent about a year doing that. The Alamos were fairly well accepted. They opened a grocery store, service station, a restaurant. They were always extremely well-dressed. They rode around in Cadillacs, and uh, Susan was very quick to tell you that she was one of God's children, and God wants his kids to go first class. He and Susan had opulence. They, you know, they had furs and diamonds and, you know, the limos and an entourage. That's Debbie Shriver, who we met last time, author of Whispering in the Daylight. All that they did outside the church that presented one 
face to the outside world, particularly to stars and politicians, and he was able to sort of hook into them that way. Did the followers really know that he was living that way? The inner circle did. I didn't know about the Beverly Hilton. I didn't know about, you know, these restaurants. I didn't know about the organic food stores where the most expensive, you know, I didn't know about that stuff until I got involved. Susie explained it, you know, well, we are a Cadillac ministry and God's going to bless you if you serve the Lord. I do remember being, I think I was about seven or eight years old and the local news started filming a lot because Tony actually invited them up to show how well everyone actually lived. And there was so much staging, like furniture was brought into different people's houses and, and we they were told exactly what house to go into we were told how to act what to say who was the ones that was supposed to be at the front we were dressed to our best everything was so completely staged and i remember being told that the the devil was fighting us through the labor department but we were going to win this battle because god was on our side this show they put on this charade of well-being reminds me of jim jones who also invited the camera crews in to hear his followers lie about how great things were in Guyana. There's also a strange, or perhaps fitting, parallel here to North Korea, which has built fake factories facing the southern border. Alamo is a lot like the Kims, actually, because he's not just fooling the outsiders. He convinced his own people that the Labor Department, an organization meant to protect them, was the devil trying to destroy them all. With the outside threat established, members were motivated to work harder and longer and younger. Jessica's first job was airbrushing the jean jackets. Ninth or 10th grade, you only went to school three hours and then you went and worked on the jackets. So we airbrushed and we, um, and basically we would get there probably around noon, one o'clock, and then we would just be there till like 11 o'clock at night, airbrushing or rhinestoning the jackets. And then that moved into the modeling of the jackets when we moved to LA with my dad. And uh, my sister and I, we did the modeling of the jackets and that was something that we, my sister and I thought was gonna be so fun because what teenage girl doesn't want to model? His followers made jackets that became quite the fashion. There were blue jean jackets, bedazzled with sequins and rhinestone and airbrushed. They were called Tony Alamo Designs. It was definitely not fun. It was awful because it was basically running these shows and writing orders at these shows when we were 14 and 15 years old. We were pulled out of school, so we didn't go to school anymore. And we basically ran these, helped run these shows from like 7 in the morning we'd be there to set it up. And then we wouldn't get off until after we closed down because Tony didn't want the jackets to stay there. He wanted them all boxed back up. So every day at the end of a show, we would box all these jackets back up, which means we wouldn't get to dinner till about 10 or 11. So you would go all day without eating. And I remember one time saying, can my sister and I have $10 to go get a hot dog? We are starving. And they said, we have to ask Tony. And I remember missing lunch that day, one of many, because they couldn't get a hold of Tony to ask him if they could spend $10 on two 14 and 15 year olds to get lunch. And so it became the most exhausting work ever. If you would say, when did you really like have that moment when you started to wake up, it would have been here. He gathered everybody together in the booth and he just started freaking out on everyone, yelling and screaming and calling people names. But the worst part of it was when he called my sister at 14 and said he could have hired models to do what we do. Like it was our privilege to be there and how dare we not be on our toes all day. And my sister was just weeping and my dad was standing there not doing a thing. And that was my first moment 
that I actually felt hatred towards Tony. We'll hear more about this later, but I just have to stop and let that sink in. Remembering how badly I needed my mom when I was being interrogated by the Italian police, and knowing that she was rushing 3,000 miles to help me, it hits me hard hearing how these parents just stood there, allowing Tony Alamo to abuse their children. That might be the part of the cult tactics that puts the biggest knot in my stomach, the way Tony dissolved the parent-child bond of his followers. Like Carrie said, you know, you get these thoughts, you get these moments where you just know that what you're feeling is right, but all of a sudden, all of your training comes in and goes, touch not mine anointed, do my prophets no harm. And just what the scripture he quoted about receiving an accusation against an elder. So you start to reprove yourself. You start to make yourself come back into the thinking that you were taught because you literally feel that if you don't, you will end up in hell because this was God's anointed and somehow, some way, this was part of your training to be able to get to the place where you just willingly accepted everything he said. Hey Jessica, you, your sister and, you know, you, you guys were kind of plucked from, from the compound. You were plucked from, you know, the isolated existence and, and, you know, brought to New York and brought to L.A. That's Leslie Mattingly, executive producer of the docuseries. What were you thinking about all the people that were on the outside who you were parading the jackets in front of? You know, we were told that we were that they were people who were going to buy the jackets and the more jackets we sold, the more money that the Lord was going to bring in to to further the gospel that and that we would take the gospel all over the world. And so we actually believed that these people who were buying the jackets, we believed that there may be an opportunity for them to come to Jesus. So Everybody was lost in our book. Everybody outside of our booth was a lost soul who needed saving. So we had to be on our best behavior to show them who Jesus was. <laughs> Not about love. This was a different Jesus. To me, these were all people who were unbelievers. They were all going to hell. And maybe something I did could help them find the truth through Tony Alamo's ministry. Tony and Susan offered their members a small savior complex of their own. They weaponized that desire to help people, using it to excuse the horrible treatment they put their members through and as a tool for recruitment. They were personally made for stars. When you see how Tony Alamo used the photographs of his jackets with the stars, it's nothing but a photo op. Brooke Shields, Sonny as in Sonny and Cher, all these people that we see and know that would validate him to us. So how could this man be doing anything illegal? Coming out and being able to start researching and recognizing the way the culture operated in the United States of America, the land of the free, I, I was blown away at the things that was held back from me and the things that I had to do that I thought were right. So absolutely, I came to the conclusion that we were nothing more in that compound than slaves who basically did what we were told. And if you didn't, there wasn't just mental repercussions and there wasn't just isolation, but there were physical repercussions. So you were broken down mentally and physically anytime you even thought of rebelling. And when I started to learn history and the different different ways and cultures of our, our nation when it first started, guys, I don't think there was much of a difference between the slavery I read about and what I saw in this cult. 
my dad was a very good salesperson. And so he was very good at what he did. And he, he would always tell me that he learned everything he learned from Tony. And so Tony put him over the candy building. And so that was a place where my dad would get candy. And I don't know at the time, because I was a kid, I didn't know how they were getting it. I just know that we would go and bag these bulk boxes of candy into bags and they would label them and sell them. So I remember, I remember that. And then I just remember, um, like a lot of people, just hundreds of people being there sometimes till 11 and 12 o'clock at night because I would come on the weekends and, and everybody would be working. We would either be, be bagging this candy or labeling cans or taking dates off of stuff. I remember being told that the government put the wrong dates on. So we were taking them off so people weren't um, confused. A part of me almost wants to laugh at how basic Tony Alamo's businesses were glitter jackets, candy, but maybe that's the genius of it. They're so innocuous, on the outside at least. Inside, they were brutal and effective, almost like boot camp, where shared suffering creates bonds that justifies the suffering. We definitely made the best of it because we were a group of people who just had fun. And I just remember, yeah, there were definitely times where you just had fun and being with, a, you know, the camaraderie of people. And yeah, there were breaks. I think your break was if you had to go to the bathroom. They're all volunteers. And uh, they have become born-again Christians and people that are really born-again. They don't believe that they uh, need to be paid to serve the Lord. Based on some of the news footage we have, it seems like there were Alamo businesses all over town, like construction, candy, the restaurant. That's Eleanor West, an associate producer for the doc series. Did it feel that way to you? Like you, anywhere you went, it was an Alamo-owned entity or you were working all over town? Yes, and I, know, I remember as a kid, you got to a certain age and you just wanted to be able to work at, like, I remember some of us kids couldn't wait to get old enough to be able to waitress at the restaurant or who is going to, what job were you going to have? Were you going to work at the grocery store? Were you going to work at the sewing room you know, or the clothing store when it was there? That was your goal as a kid to grow up and work at one of those places. <laughs> We were almost like the Scientology in Sarasota. We were taking over the town. The townspeople kind of felt that way. They felt pretty intimidated. Susan Alamo was a partial relative to the sheriff of Crawford County there. We could pretty much do whatever they wanted in that town. You're going to recognize a lot of this stuff when I say it, Jess, even though you're younger. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I also participated in booking a lot of these shows. These country music guys, they're not like big rock stars that only do giant stadiums. They travel around and they do all kinds of shows. And we got in the restaurant, we brought in like Dolly Parton, Porter Wagner, Ronnie Millsap, uh, Roy Orbison, Hank Williams Jr., or Charlie Pride. I remember him. He he almost punched out Tony Alamo because Tony Alamo made a racist crack around him in the back room there. And they had to like haul him. They had to restrain him. <laughs> I saw him down the gas station afterwards. I said, "What's up, Charlie?" He says, "I'm gonna knock that mutter mutter mutter." You know, I, you know, he was he was mad. People who did the jackets like Sonny Bono and Mr. T was big, and Don King, Kenny Rogers, God, who else? Burt Reynolds. We sent them jackets. Gave it to him for free, you know, please wear these, but only a few of them would ever wear them in public, Mr. T and uh, Don King and a few others. Don King still wears his, looks like it's about to rot off his body. Tony and Susan were very proud of the really known stars that they could get to sing at their restaurant in Arkansas. They started bringing in country and Western singers. 
When I had Dolly Parton there at the uh, restaurant, we took in $100,000 every two days. Bill and Hillary Clinton came to the restaurant, and even he said Tony Alamo was like Roy Orbison on speed. But the IRS caught up with them. And when they did, Tony tried to shift the blame to Carrie, who did the books. Filed criminal charges against me and a civil suit against me. I counterfiled. I won and he lost. And in that suit, I was able to go in there and testify and we pierced the corporate veil. We made him personally liable. I also remember large prayer meetings where he would ask, tell everybody to get in a room and just start contending against Carrie and Bob. <laughs> so you would hear all these adults like praying prayers against that God would destroy Carrie and Bob Miller. And he would, you know, all, literally praying to God for horrible things to happen to Carrie and Bob because they came against the prophet of God. Oh, yeah. I heard the stories. Yeah. <laughs> we're praying. We were praying for God to kill you. <laughs> you know, yes. You're the anti. Yes. You're the anti. Christ. I had just had my, my fourth daughter, and he asked me to come and to the court case to testify against you on behalf of him and how that, that we ran the businesses right and everybody, you know, loved what they did. And he was telling me all these things I was supposed to say. Well, I walked down the hall and I saw you and I saw Bob and I saw, but I remember going, oh my gosh, what if they bring up Justin speeding? And I said, Sue, I just saw Bob and Carrie in the courtroom. I'm supposed to get up and testify, but I'm just letting you know, what if they ask me about Justin and his beating? I was there. And she says, you're just going to say it didn't happen. And I said, I can't say that. I'd be lying. And that's, I can't, I can't do that. And so I left to go nurse my, my baby because my baby was only two weeks old. So I went to, into the bathroom to nurse. When I came back, Tony was there telling us exactly what to say when we got on the stand. And he looked at me and he said, you're not getting on that stand. And, and I, I remember his look was like very angry with me because apparently Sue had told him I wasn't going to testify. I will never forget that. That's the way it worked. He's only going to put people up there yeah, that would lie. You remember the doctrine of it's okay to lie to the devil? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Tony. You people lie to me all the time. And, you know, and the, the government comes up and asks you a share, you know, a cop or law enforcement. And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, this happened, that, you know, well. He got us so terrified of the government that, in my mind, I was afraid that if I lied on the stand, the government would figure it out and something horrible would happen to me. So it backfired on him. <laughs> you were also a true believer. You thought, I, was. I can't lie before I was. God. You can't, you know, I, I don't, you're telling me, you may be the oracle of God, but you're telling me to lie. And that's the Bible. You're says absolutely not to do that. You know, I don't know if you were there in the courtroom when I was on the stand and they really didn't talk about the issues, about the bookkeeping. Jeffrey Dickstein, the lawyer, you remember that guy. <laughs> and, uh, he stood up and he said, oh, you said your wife and your brother's wife were brainwashed, huh? And I said, yeah, they most certainly were. And he had Susan Miller stand up and she was she had had a makeover and had a nice dress. He looked at the jury. He says, does this look like a brainwashed woman to you? And I said, well, you know what she looks like to me? And he cut me off. And uh, I said, well, I'd like to answer your question. You're supposed to be asking me questions, not the jury. You know, and he says, uh, I would draw the question. And then at the end of it, when I was going up stand, the judge says, now, what were you going to say about um, your sister-in-law? Because she was, she was still legally married to Bob. And I said, well, he asked me, what does she look like? I said, let me tell you what she looks like. She looks like a woman who knows that her two little boys are 3,000 miles away from her. And they're wondering why she won't have anything to do with them. 
and the jury just went, oh. When her boys were taken that day, she was devastated. She was heartbroken. I mean, she, she was weeping beyond, and Tony told her that if she would stay faithful to God, those children would be back one day. She just bought it hook, line, and sinker. And when things would go wrong with Sue, you know how people put people on report, Tony would always condemn her, use, use the boys being gone to condemn her. Like, that's why your boys were taken. That's why your boys aren't with you anymore. And it would just tear her down to the very core. That is heartbreaking and horrific to hear. And yet, from a business point of view, if you're running an illegal enterprise, the way to prevent an organized workforce reporting you or ganging up against you and saying this is wrong is you sow divisiveness among them. That's Fenton Bailey, executive producer. You separate them, you break up families, you separate the children, you separate husbands and wives, and you keep them all hostage to each other so no one, I suppose, dare speak out. What you were saying, Jessica, about Sue is she didn't dare say what she may well have known to be the right thing to say or may, may well have known what the truth was because her children were essentially kidnapped. And yet, and yet you know, I, I can't help asking you guys, like, how did this manage to go on for so long? It's like... There's laws in this country, there's the IRS, there's labor laws. It seems that we have this vast apparatus for justice and fairness, and and yet it seems to not have worked. Because 20 years is, 40 years is way too long, right? Can you imagine for a minute you being on the outside and hearing that some of this stuff is going on, on on some property in a town that you're living in? And then all of a sudden, Tony gets smart and he invites the news media up and has them interview certain people. And these people are asked if they're paid. They're asked all of these questions and they lie on the and they act like they're happy. And then you see all of these children playing in a swimming pool and 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 running around and and happy. You would really believe that the person that said a bunch of things bad about this communal society just had a vendetta. You, it would be really hard to watch all of that and believe that this isn't a good thing and that these people want to be here. And it's a church, operated as a church, imposed as a church, and we still have a lot of reluctance to question that sort of thing. Some parents were forced to be thrown kids. And if you can force somebody to do something like that, defile their maternal instinct, you can get them to lie to the IRS, you can get them to do anything, you can get them to be totally obedient, you can get them to testify in court falsely, and just and you can run, and you can get them to run obediently, run your businesses, turn over every penny to you. I believe this agency to be a Gestapo organization that is trying to destroy the freedom of religion. To him, it was some kind of a war. The law says, Hey, if you want to turn the paycheck over and endorse it back to the church, you're free to do that. But you have to get a paycheck. Tell us about the Tempur-Pedic mattress scam. The cult used to start charity organizations, taxes them charity, and they go around and they solicit donations. When Katrina happened, the hurricane down in New Orleans, and they approached Tempur-Pedic out of Delaware and said, look, you know, all these victims and everything, and we're a charitable organization. Can you donate some mattresses to us? Well, anyway, they got about $9 million worth of mattresses out of uh, Tempur-Pedic, but none of them made it to Katrina. And they were sold directly to, you know, mattress dealers and stuff at a discount price. You know? That's the thing about being able to get stuff free, you know, through tax exempt is you can undercut all the competition and everything. And yeah, and they made millions off of this. And then the book even went through several different sham corporations and holding companies and several different sets of books and impossible to trace. It's mind-boggling. In the case of Alama Ministries, it sounds like the money was actually pretty well accounted for. It didn't seem like anybody was really skimming the money. So I'm then thinking, well, ultimately... 
how much money are we talking about? And like, was money spirited away overseas? Do you think they used to send ten, twenty thousand dollar Western unions cash to them? It was unaccountable and written off. And you know, we had so many corporations we set up. There was even a time when we started putting property when the cult started putting property into members' names. Now you signed a deed where you you owned a house or you owned a plot, but then at the same time you also signed an undated document where you donated it back to the cult. Now when I was there, there was people that used to, you know people that were higher echelon than me would take plane trips down to the Netherlands Antilles and the Caribbean would briefcases full of cash. Alamo liked to buy property and he liked to spend money. The dude was the worst businessman I've ever saw in my life. You know he didn't know how to he just blow everything. Uh, hadn't been for Susan's control. But I've made a lot of money. In my life uh, if uh, and lots of it hundreds of millions of dollars and how much have you made if you haven't been made as much as me then why do you keep thinking that I don't understand if you have money you're smart huh well that's what they say if okay. you're so smart how come you ain't rich say don't you ever hear that down in Arkansas all those criminal activities that raised money during that era continued, obviously, to bring wealth and power to Tony Alamo as he continued to rule from prison until he died. And you know, my understanding is he would buy property for his wives to live near wherever he was imprisoned. And so there's obviously, you all saw a real growth in wealth during that time, during the criminal activities. Well, it does seem interesting that at the heart of this criminal empire, is a very substantive real estate business, which makes me think of someone else. Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more, but <laughs> with, with all these like spin-offs, you know, <laughs> just call Bingo. someone to mind. You know? <laughs> and it's a weird combination of, you know, a, a, a weird sort of kind of greed savvy with a kind of, Kerry, you said just stupidity and sort of brazenness at, at, at illegality. It's, it's not like a super calculated, clever, worked out strategy. It's just, well, we don't care what the laws are. We'll just break them all and leave it to the government or the authorities to somehow come get us. Don't get the impression that Tony Alamo was some kind of exceptional individual. He was a dumb thug who got lucky. <laughs> Was he just a dumb thug? Or is there some charismatic grafter genius at play? When we see an unscrupulous and successful businessman like Tony Alamo, it's easy to think, sure, he's a cheat, but he is rich. He must know something. But maybe it's just the vastness of the lie again. It's too hard to fathom that he could be such a grafter, such a cheat, that he would break so many laws so flagrantly that his followers would aid and abet that wholesale deception and illegality. But if you've been conditioned to a place where you stand by as your child is being beaten, maybe lying to the IRS is small potatoes. Religions and businesses both tap into our tribal circuits. They harness the power of groupthink and group action. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We have amazing cathedrals, medical technologies, and the internet because of that. But that tendency also makes us vulnerable, and it empowers people like Tony Alamo, who, dumb or not, have a knack for controlling and steering the herd. So far, you've had a taste of what it was like inside that environment. Next episode, we'll go deeper and learn what it was like to grow up in the cult. 
I never remember a moment that I wasn't terrified. It's very easy to use the Bible to back up abusing children. For the kids born into this world, the abuse and fear that Tony Alamo fostered, that was normal. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe to The Truth About True Crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 